Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Praise God. Well, we got a, uh, a big one to get into today, kind of a tough one today. So uh, we'll try to keep the intro short, but uh, let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, I just thank you as we study your word today that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive what you have for us, but also to understand what your word is trying to say. Father, we want to know you. We want to know what your word says, what your will is, Father. And uh, I just pray that you would uh, be with us this morning as we make our way through it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is one of those like we were just singing in the song, you know, will, will you meet me here again? The great part about that question is uh, the answer is always yes. God will always meet you where you're at. And uh, I know that sometimes there's parts of the Bible that are a little bit difficult to wrap your head around, to work through, to understand what is going on. And, and uh, today, as we, as we get started, uh, a little bit into it, we're going to start talking about the discipline of God. And uh, it's a tough one, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll learn some stuff, and, and, uh, um, man, and then we grow. Amen. So as we get started here in, in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to make it through the first half of the chapter, one, verses 1 through 17, um, you'll remember we're coming out of chapter 11, right? And that was the description of all the, the men and women of God who lived before the reader's time, and obviously before our time by extension. Um, and these were this men and women of great faith that you found in the Old Testament. And today the, the author is going to remind his readers that just like these great heroes of the faith, that they're going to be required to endure. How many people like to endure? <laughs> it's, it's part of life, but it's something that's required of us. But we're, we're going to be required, just like those, those heroes of the faith, to endure until the end. And even though they were living through trials and they were experiencing suffering, uh, that the readers could, that the author speaking to here, they could, they could relate to these men and women who went through the same things, but they endured to the end. They could be encouraged to run their own race of endurance just like the people before them had. So let's, without further ado, let's get started. Like I said, we've got a lot to get through. I don't want to be here too long today, but it starts out in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, as you just mentioned, this, this cloud of great witnesses that the author is talking about, it's all the men and women in chapter 11 that he was talking about, the heroes of faith that he spoke about. And he's saying that these are a great cloud of witnesses. And it doesn't mean witnesses in the sense of like, we have all these people around us in a big coliseum watching every move that we make. Amen for that, right? There's some moves I'd rather people not see me make. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like we have a, a crowd of people that are, that, are, that, are, that are watching us. They're not witnesses like that, but they're, they're witnesses in the sense of kind of how we're witnesses to the world. How many know that you're a witness to the world? And that doesn't mean that you're standing around watching the world, right? That doesn't mean that the, our, our goal is to just watch what's happening. As a witness to the world, what that means is that uh, we have seen and witnessed the love of God 
and the blood of Jesus and what is accomplished in our lives and the lives of the others. And we testify to the goodness and the greatness of God. This idea of witness is more like a witness in a, in a, in a, in a trial rather than just the one seeing it, even though they're obviously related, but that's what he's referring to here. So in the same way that we're a witness to the world of God's goodness and greatness, these great men and women, this, this cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by, they're witnesses to the result of a life lived by faith. As we read about their lives, they testify of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And they encourage us to live out that same faith in our lives. You know, when we read the Bible, that we should be seeing what people are going through and want to either learn from what they did or be encouraged by what they did. And pray that you have the wisdom to know the difference. <laughs> but since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, this great... Uh, you know, this, this massive amount of examples for us to live by, we need to make sure that we're running our own race with endurance to the end as well. Our walk as believers is compared to an endurance race. Do you find that interesting? That means our walk with God, our walk in the faith, our, our walk through life is not a sprint. Now, when I was growing up, I was in track, and I did shot put and discus, always been a big guy, but I did run the 100-meter dash, and the reason why I liked it is because I could run pretty fast for a short period of time, <laughs> not as fast as really good people, but pretty fast for a big guy, that's for sure. <laughs> I could run pretty fast for a short period of time, but after 100 meters, I couldn't breathe anymore. <laughs> there, there's, I would watch these guys running like the 3,200 meter races or even the bigger, the bigger races. And I'd be like, how do you do that? How do you keep going? And, and we're talking, have you ever watched professional marathon runners run? They're running a marathon, 26.2 miles at like a four minute mile pace for 26 miles. <laughs> That's Endurance. I, don't, I didn't have endurance when I was running. It was a sprint for me. I could give it all I had for a short period of time, but then I was done. But our walk as Christians, it's not a sprint. You don't just give it your all and you're done. You know, to be a Christian, it's not all about coming up and laying your life down on the altar and saying, God, I trust you and you're done. No, you have a, a race to run and we have to run it with endurance. And we're essentially running a spiritual marathon that's going to test our stamina and our commitment. And this cloud of witnesses that he's talking about, these are people that ran their race and they showed their stamina, they demonstrated their commitment and they're an encouragement to us. So he says, hey, since we have these people, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he gives us a couple instructions here. How do you make sure that you're able to run with endurance? The first thing is, is that if you're doing any kind of endurance sport, you want to get rid of as much weight as you can. The first step is always to lighten your load. If you're ever going to do any endurance hiking or endurance biking, you don't want to take 
everything with you. Like if you're going on a several day endurance hike, you got to pack enough stuff to make sure you get it, right? You, you want to pack some food and some extra clothes and you want to have some sort of shelter, but you're not packing everything in the kitchen sink. Matter of fact, you want to go to the store and buy the lightest, the lightest sleeping bag you can. You want to buy the lightest, smallest tent you can. All the food you bring is more than likely freeze-dried, so it weighs less. You're doing everything you can to reduce the weight, to make it a little bit easier to make that hike. One of the things you guys know that I like to do, even though I haven't done it a bit, I'm getting back into it again, is, is cycling. I really like to cycle. And one of the things that's always important in cycling, especially as you get higher up in the, in, the, in the professional tiers, is how light you can make the bike. You see, for me, it's always fun for us amateurs to talk about how, how, how we can get the nicest, lightest bike. Problem is we're trying to shave, you know, ounces off some of the equipment when we all got, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds around our gut to lose. I can lighten my load the most by losing some weight rather than buying a $7,000 piece of equipment. But if you're running, if you're a professional, you're looking for the lightest you can. I was looking, when we watch those marathon runners, they don't put on a weight vest and, and combat boots before they go running. Matter of fact, you ever watch marathon runners? They're wearing like the lightest equipment, the shortest shorts, little tiny tank tops. And I was looking, if you want to buy really good quality shoes, you know how much really good quality uh, marathon level running shoes weigh? Like seven ounces. They, they want to do everything that they can to lower the weight because all that extra weight over a long time begins to add up. You can say, well, what if I get a 10-ounce pair of shoes? That, it's only three ounces. That's not that big of a deal. But when you do that over miles and miles, that weight begins to add up and it begins to drag you down. And it's like that for us when we're running our race. He says, you know what? You need to lay aside every weight. And he's not talking about sin here. All weights are not sin. There are things that may be holding you back that don't necessarily contradict with God's word. How you use your time. What holds your focus. Some of us have hobbies that steal our, our focus and attention away from God. Some people are in relationships that they should probably let go because it's stealing their focus away from God. And the truth is, is that even for us Christians, we let Christian things get in the way. Christian weights. We get so involved in programs or, or Christian music or any of these kind of things that those things begin to pull us down. It becomes about the thing instead of about the one that it's supposed to point to. We have to let these weights go if we want to run with endurance and keep our eyes on Him. The next thing we have to do after we lay aside the weights is we need to lay aside sin which clings so closely. See, that's the problem with sin is it tries to hold on. It doesn't want to let you go. Anybody ever been tossed into a pool or a river or a lake or something when you're fully clothed? Have you ever noticed that when that happens, like your clothes just seem to like suck to you and it makes it hard to swim and makes it hard to move. And the truth is, is if you have too much on, it can actually wrap you up so much you can't swim and make it to the service. And, and people have drowned because they've gone into large bodies of water with too much clothes on and it clung to them and pulled them down. And sins like that, it'll cling to you and try to pull you down. 
And here's the thing about added weight and added sin is, is it makes you want to quit. It makes you want to give up. It makes you want to take the easy way out. So we're going to see as, as, as we go through this, the author here is talking to a group of people that are experiencing persecution. They're experiencing um, struggles and hardships. As a matter of fact, the whole first part of it was, was in, in, uh, encouraging them that, that Jesus Christ is superior and reminding them not to turn back to the old ways. They needed to keep pressing on and not give up, maintain that level of faith they had in the beginning and not give up because they're going through some stuff. And this stuff is weighing them down and it's clinging to them and, and it's making them want to turn back. And that's what these things will do. If we let them stay in our lives, they'll pull us down. So we have to keep an eye out for these things and, and not let it. Make sure that we strip them away so that we can be faithful and endure to the end. Amen? And he goes on in verse 2, as we're running this, this race, right? It ends here. He says, with endurance, the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. <laughs> Do you know that as we run, we're not running to nowhere? I mean, that's a good thing. We're not just spinning our wheels. Instead, we're running looking to Jesus, who is actually waiting at the finish line for us. And he is a, a perfect example for us because he perfectly ran his race. He endured to the end. He made it to the finish line. And you'll notice that it says here that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. But did you know that if you look this up, and if you have a, a, a digital Bible where you can double-click on the words and it'll bring the Greek word up, on this our word here, if you click on it, nothing happens. There's actually no Greek word that, that, that meets that. If you look at other translations like the New American Standard Bible, it actually doesn't put it there. And what it says is he's not the perfecter of our faith, but he's just the author and perfecter of faith. Jesus is the one who created faith, and he showed us how to live it perfectly. He's the initiator of our faith, and he actually opened the door for us to follow in his footsteps. And he did this for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him. If you didn't know that, that was, that's you and me. We were the joy set before him. He endured incredibly horrific things. But he didn't give up. Even though he hated it, it says he despised the shame. Even though he hated what he was going through, he didn't give up. And instead he endured. And ultimately he finished his race and he's now sitting at the right hand of God. And when he went to the cross, he became faith's perfecter. In other words, he made faith perfect by accomplishing what faith's ultimate goal was by going to the cross. He's the one who invented faith. He's the one who showed us how to live it as our example. Amen. And he is who we're running towards when we run our race. And then he continues on in verses 3 through 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted and your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood so jesus who went willingly to be beaten 
to be humiliated and ultimately hung on a cross by the very people that he came to save. He's the one that we look at when we're struggling in our own race. You see, sometimes when, it's, when you're struggling, it feels like you can't go on. You can't do anything more. You're at the end of your rope. Anybody ever felt at the end of their rope? I wonder how Jesus felt. Actually, you don't even have to wonder. It tells you how Jesus felt when he was in the garden and he was, he was sweating blood. And he said, God, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. That was a time when I bet Jesus felt like maybe he couldn't go on any longer, but instead he endured. He said, not my will, but your will be done. So anytime that we're struggling, we're to look at him to see that he kept going, who willingly went through all of those things. And we look to him for encouragement to endure what we must. And the reality is, is in Jesus' struggle against sin, he gave his life. And when I say his struggle against sin, I'm not saying that Jesus was struggling with sinful issues. What I'm saying was is, is that he actually came to fight sin. Matter of fact, when we look at this, uh, this scripture, when it talks about his struggle against sin, it's actually personified in people. It says, consider him who endured sinners from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary. Because in your struggle against sin, it seems to be equating that struggle against sin here against the persecution that Jesus faced. The struggle that he came was at the hands of sinful men. And he endured to the end, ultimately defeating that sin. And in our struggle against sin, particularly in the U.S., we haven't even come close to resisting like Jesus resisted. We certainly haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. And truthfully, when this letter was written, while there would certainly be Christians in the future who would give their life in the struggle against sin, we, we, we know them today as martyrs, those who gave their life in the struggle against sin and sinful men. But it appears that by the time of this writing, none of that had happened yet, at least none of these people he was writing to had. He says, listen, none of you have resisted to the point of shedding blood. But Jesus did. So look to him as your encouragement his life is in you. If he endured, then that means that you can endure. Maybe not on your own. Certainly not on your own. But with him inside of you, with his strength, his life living through you, you can endure. And like I said, while this passage seems to, to really uh, be personifying sin and, and, and persecution and sinful men, I think that means uh, resisting our daily struggles with sin in our own lives as well. We need to resist sin and don't let it have us. Because the problem is, as we run back into this issue, we have sin that clings to us so closely if we don't resist it. So look to Jesus when you're struggling in those areas for encouragement because he did it before you. He showed you how to do it in his life is inside of you. He gave you his life on that cross. He took yours and put it to death on that cross and he gave you his. And the life that he lived, ultimately, we can be encouraged to live that same way. And then in verses uh, five through six, it says, and have you forgotten the exhortation? Oops. 
No, that's the right place. 526, next part. And have you forgotten the exhortation that address is you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we have to think about where we're coming with this. We're getting into that discipline part. So the first thing we have to look at is, is what is the author doing? He's talking to these people. They're going through some suffering. And he's saying, look, you can endure like Jesus endured. But then he goes on to say, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So it begins to indicate that maybe some of what they're going through is also discipline by the Lord, the suffering, the hardship that they're going through. And before we really dig into this next section on discipline, um, I want you all to know that I'm still working my way through this. Now, you'll be shocked to know I don't know everything, nor do I have all the answers. I'll give you guys a minute to get over the shock. I understand what you're going through right now, so we'll just give it a second. But the truth is, is that, that uh, as I'm reading through this, this is some difficult stuff for me to, to kind of wrap my head around and to go through. And the truth is, is, as I read through all the commentaries on this, and I'm trying to work my way through it, see what other great men of God have thought about it, I'm kind of under the impression that nobody really knows what exactly is referring to, because they all talk about discipline of the Lord, and 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 the outcome of it, and the purpose of it, and what it, but not a single one of them ever starts talking about what it actually is. Like, what is the discipline of the Lord? It doesn't. Have, nobody ever really makes. It, it's like they all use the word discipline and the definition of discipline. So, what is this discipline of the Lord? Well, yeah, it's the discipline of the Lord. Duh. Like that, no one really explains what it is. So, as I'm working my way through this, I'm going to give you some of my thoughts on this, and where I think particularly this passage is dealing with. And you'll get to see my thought process a little bit along the way. And hopefully it'll help you to come uh, to at least a little bit better understanding of it, even though I fully admit that I don't have all the answers. So one of the things, when we look at this stuff and what the church is going through here, these particular readers are going through, is have you ever wondered why Christians suffer persecution? The insults, the rejection, the physical violence that comes at the hands of sinful men. When I think about this, you would think that this would actually be a great deterrent to becoming a Christian. And I wonder, why is it that God lets this kind of stuff happen? I mean, God could just step in and stop it and completely protect Christians. But he doesn't. So, so I wonder, why do Christians have to go through this? What is the whole purpose of all of this stuff? And the truth is, when we're talking to people about being Christians, the brochure would look a lot better if we could say, look, you become a Christian, nothing bad ever happens again. Ever. So why wouldn't God just make sure Christians are protected at all times? And I think there's a couple of reasons. First, is that in order to do so, he would have to remove the free will of those who are willing to do harm. And taking away someone's free will, while I believe is in God's capability, is not something he's willing to do. You know, that's the thing when people talk about, oh, if God can do, God can do everything, can he, you know, can he make this rock, can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? 
You know, and that makes the assumption that, that God can do anything. Did you know God can't do everything? God can't sin. And he's unwilling to operate outside of what his word says. So he's unwilling to, to take over somebody's mind and make them do something against their will. So I think he's unwilling to do that. But second, I think that God actually uses persecution to discipline his church. So with that kind of background thought process in mind, let's start looking at what is being said here. He says, you've forgotten about the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we know that God does discipline the ones he loves. The problem is, is that I think too many Christians begin to attribute to God things that shouldn't be attributed to him. They begin to say, oh, the reason this is happening in my life or in somebody else's life is because God's disciplining them or punishing them for something that they've done. And you hear this about, you know, cancer or other illnesses. Um, my pastor's wife, she had uh, a really bad acne at one time and someone told her that the reason why you have this is because there's some sin in your life. You know, it's God's disciplining her by giving her uh, some medical condition. I, I think that's just silly. And we hear that about floods and hurricanes and all other kinds of natural disasters. This is God disciplining or punishing this group of people or, or certain accidents that happen. Something happens to somebody and, oh, that's just, you know, you, the reason why you fell and broke your leg is because, you know, God's just teaching you a lesson. That's some sort of discipline. And I, I think that that is, that is silly. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard about God sending hurricanes or earthquakes or fires to punish America. But some things I want you to think about when you start trying to attribute to God discipline to all these different things is this right here. It says, My son, do not regard like the discipline of the Lord, uh, nor we're being reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So it seems to me the Lord's discipline is reserved for those he loves and those who he receives as, as sons. John 1.12 says, you know, one of the the, the a poor idea, particularly the non-Christians have, is that we're all children of God. We're actually not. John 1.12 says this, but to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're not a child of God until you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Everybody in the world is not a child of God. They're loved by God, but they've not been given the right to be a child of God. So it says he disciplines those he loves and he chastises whom every son whom he receives. So it seems to me that discipline is reserved for the children of God. So if something happens to believers and unbelievers alike, can we say that it's the discipline of the Lord? Can we, can we ask, is this God's discipline? And like I said, I'm working my way through this. These are the questions I'm asking myself as I think about this stuff. If it happens to everybody, can it be discipline? If God disciplines his sons. Does, does God discipline those who aren't his sons? The indication that I see in the scriptures says he disciplines and chastises his sons. Not everyone. So these are the things that I'm thinking about when I read about this discipline. And the only thing that I can think about that only happens to Christians and nobody else is persecution. 
And when you come from the context of this one, he, he starts talking about Jesus resisting hostility against, uh, uh, against himself by sinful men, the struggle against sin. So it seems to me that maybe that's what this is talking about. And an example of God using sinful men in persecution to discipline his, his church would be the early church. When you read about it in Acts chapter 8, God used persecution to force the disciples out of Jerusalem because he said, no, you need to be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And they stayed in, in Jerusalem for something like six to eight years before the persecution got so bad that they had to run to finally get the gospel spread anywhere outside of Jerusalem. So in that instance, I think that's God certainly using persecution to discipline his church to get them to do what he wanted them to do. And then in verses 7 through 8, he says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Like I said, if I'm being honest as I work through this, this idea of discipline is difficult for me to understand and fully wrap my head around. Because where is the line drawn between what God causes and what God uses? You know, we talked about... Uh, uh, the idea of cancer being used as discipline or God's, God giving somebody cancer to, to, to punish them or, or discipline them into doing something. And, and I don't believe for one moment that God causes cancer. But I do believe that he'll use stuff like that to help us grow. Is that discipline? And I guess in one sense of the word, it kind of is because it, it changes when you think about the word discipline and how it's applied and how it's used. For example, here it says it is for discipline that you have to endure. And to me, this, this comes across in my mind. Uh, you can look at it two ways. If it, if it is the discipline caused by God, you know, God actively disciplining, then, then it's like, you know, for some reason, just for God to be able to discipline, you have to endure. And it doesn't make any sense to me that way. Like, the whole purpose is the discipline. But if you think about it in a way, let's say think of an athlete. An athlete that is disciplined gets up every morning, and they, they work out, they eat right, they do all the right things. It takes discipline for that person to get up every single day and do those things. And the result of this discipline is a stronger body. So then we're talking about the discipline itself being a good thing. So when you think about it in this way, it is for discipline that you have to endure. The endurance actually helps us to be disciplined, to have discipline. And I hope you're following me along because this is how my brain's working through all this stuff. I'm trying to understand it. Like I said, I don't... If you ask me to describe what exactly is God's discipline, what does it look like, this whole rant is what you'd get. Another example, think about someone who's extremely disciplined in their organization. The result of that discipline is great time management and their coverage look awesome. They can find stuff when they want it. So when I look at this, so we endure in order to be disciplined, in order to grow and to prove. And that's why it's for this discipline, this growth, this improvement 
that we endure. The truth is that's why we're called disciples, <laughs> because we're supposed to live our lives disciplined according to the Word of God. So now we go back to that cancerous discipline question. So when we have to exercise spiritual discipline during suffering and hardship, even when God did not cause it, in order that we'd grow and more spiritually fit, is that discipline? I don't know. I don't know if that's what it's talking about. I certainly do know that God will use those things to help you grow. Is that what we would expect when it talks about us being having discipline? Discipline When we go through hardships in our life, even though God doesn't cause them, Him allowing us to go through them does allow us to be disciplined in the different areas of our life that that's dealing with. So I don't know all the answers, but I can say for certain is that every believer will experience God's discipline. That's one thing that we know. And like I said, I can't tell you exactly the shape it'll look like. I've expressed to you some things that I think as I go through this and how God uses certain things and how I think God uses persecution and the different things we go through so that we can be disciplined. And for, for God will use those things to shape us and to mold us and to push us in certain directions even though I don't believe he causes most of them. But I do know this, is that when he does discipline us, it's because he loves us. And even though God's discipline may be experienced as suffering and hardship, I think we can know a couple things for sure about it. One, the discipline is something that God uses as a parent towards those who are his true children. Otherwise, we wouldn't be legitimate children. It says here, look, if you're left without discipline, if you're not being disciplined, then, then you're illiterate children and not sons. Because God doesn't discipline those who, back to that question I said before, right? If it happens to everybody, is it discipline? Because God only disciplines his sons. If he doesn't discipline you, then you're illegitimate or not actually one of his sons, And this discipline also expresses love and not anger. In other words, you're not going to experience God's discipline because he's mad at you. It's not some sort of divine retribution or wrath. And finally, God's discipline is always directed towards a purpose. It's so you can grow. It's not just for no reason. God is not up there with a big stick waiting for you to mess up so he can hit you across the legs and call, you, call it discipline. But instead, when God disciplines us, it is so that we grow, that our faith increases, that our love increases, that our maturity increases, that our knowledge increases. It's so that we can grow and become more mature Christians and look more and more like Jesus Christ. Amen. And then he goes on to say, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject, subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. <laughs> but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those 
who have been trained by it. So when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, my mom was married to a guy by the name of Randy. And uh, I was probably 13 or 14 when my mom married him. And uh, before then, she was a single for a little amount of time. And, and, and my sister and I just kind of ran roughshod over my mom. And we, we got away with murder. We, we, we got away with, with everything. And, and truthfully, now that I look back, and back then I just thought we were clever and could get away with stuff. Looking back, it's probably because um, she was a single mom, and that's hard. And sometimes it's easier to look away than it is to always be dealing with these situations. But when she married Randy, this guy came in, and all of a sudden, I was getting in trouble <laughs> left and right. And as a kid, right, it, it's their fault because they caught, caught you, not because you were doing something stupid. So I was so angry at him. You know, as I'm writing my notes here, I kept saying, you know, I wanted to write. Man, I hated him for it. But I didn't really hate him. Like, it's not a, it's not a hate like I despised him. It was, it was really I hated that I was getting in trouble, and he was the one that, that seemed to be catching me all the time. Turns out that, that when he was younger, he was doing all the dumb stuff that I was doing, sneaking out and smoking and doing all kinds of stuff like that. And, and uh, he just saw the signs, and I was getting in trouble all the time. And, man, I was so angry at him for that. But as an adult, I'm so grateful that he was around. Because I recognize now that had he not came in and reined me in a little bit, I don't know where I would be today. I would probably be in jail or dead or who knows. But because he came in and he implemented discipline in my life and started shaping me towards the things that I needed to be doing, I'm a different man today than I was back then. I respect him greatly for that because he probably kept me from ruining my life. And you guys should respect him because if it had not been for him, I probably wouldn't be here today. And if I can respect him, one of my earthly fathers, he says... We've had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them for that. If we can respect them, shall we not much more respect our father who tries to discipline us? Can we not do that? Because the reality is, is that even though the stuff that we're going through is difficult, that's what it says here. It says, listen, these earthly fathers, they discipline us for a short time and seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. The thing is, if we can respect an earthly father who has faults and flaws, can't we respect a heavenly father who disciplines us, who has none of those flaws, and everything that he does is perfect, and it's for our good so that we may share in his holiness? And even though that, man, does it suck when you go through it. It says, for a moment, all discipline seems painful. That's, a, that's the, uh, the old-time way of saying, man, it really sucks when it goes through it. It says, for a short time it seemed painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields fruit in your life. It helps you grow. It makes you something different. When Randy came in and he started doing those things, the, the fruit of that, of, of, of enforcing discipline in my life, the fruit of that was that I became uh, a, a respectful and, and, and good young man. Now, it wasn't overnight. It took some time. But it was the direction, the path that it was going on. 
And in the case of God, the fruit of, of the discipline we receive at his hand is it yields righteousness in our life as we're trained to live out the righteousness that we're received in Jesus. Amen? And then he continues on. That's the end of the discipline part. Hopefully you got something out of that and it made some level of sense. But then he goes on in Hebrews 12, 12 through 13. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And now after all that stuff in the discipline, the coach comes out. He says, Look, even if you're going through some tough times, you're going through some hardship, one, Look at those people that went before you and be encouraged by their faith. Two, if some of this is discipline, be encouraged that God's doing it for your own good. Now, knowing these things, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands. The coach comes out. He begins to encourage them in the midst of the trouble and suffering. And like a good coach, he begins to push them even farther than they think they can go. He says, lift your drooping hands. If you know anything about boxing or any kind of fighting, you want to keep your hands up. Because if you drop your hands, that's how you get hit in the face. Nobody wants to get hit in the face. And the same goes for us spiritually. If we drop our hands, we're not ready. We're not uh, uh, going through what we need to be doing and we're not prepared. We drop our hands, that's how you get hit in the face. And then he says, make uh, and strengthen your weak knees. You see, sometimes when you're going through a long endurance race, and you're hitting some hard parts, your knees get weak, your knees get tired, and it makes you want to quit. So just let these things encourage you, strengthen your legs so you don't give up, and instead, make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This idea of making a straight path. Imagine you're running a race, and we're on a normal two-lane road and I'm in the middle and I'm going to run straight and you start on one side and you run back and forth like this the whole time. Imagine what your race would be like versus mine. You see, the problem is when you run a race like that, you're running probably three or four times the distance as if you had just run straight. And this is an endurance race. You need to keep your strength and keep moving on. So he says, you know what? Start making your, your path straight, which is running in accordance with the, the word of God, being obedient to God, sticking on the path of righteousness instead of swerving left and right towards the things that weigh you down on the left, towards the sin that is trying to cling to you on the right. When you keep running back and forth, it's going to make you tired out. You're making it harder on yourself. And it's always so perplexing to me to see Christians see how far they can run to one side to see how close they can get to sin without touching it. Pastor Wayne, if I do this, is it sin? What about if I, I do this? Is that sin? Well, what about if, why are you trying to get so close? Stay in the middle. Don't try to get close. The problem is, is when you get close, it's like a road that has that embankment on the end. Eventually, that embankment starts pulling you down. The thing about a winding path is that it won't allow what is lame to be healed. You see, what's happening here is we've got these people that are, are, are struggling spiritually. They're going through some tough times. 
And if you want to get through that when you're suffering, when you're in hardship, if you want to get through that, you need to make your path straight. Because if you don't, what's already hurting, what is already struggling, as he puts it here, that what is already lame, it can be put out of joint completely because you're running too far to the side. Instead, if you'll stay in the middle, it'll actually get healed if you'll stick along that path. Even in our struggles, if we stick along that straight path, it allows us to strengthen ourselves instead of further weakening ourselves and potentially crippling us. And then he goes on to this next section of giving us instructions on how to live this straight, this godly life. He says first, in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, some people read this verse, and I'm pretty sure they interpret it like this. Strive for peace with the people you like. And for the... I think that's how some people interpret this verse. But that's not what it says. It says, strive for peace with everyone. Now, notice the word strive. That means sometimes it's not going to be easy. You have to work at it. Because some people suck. That's just the way it is. Forgive me for being frank, but that's just the reality of life. But the problem is, is we see that and we don't even think about why they are the way that they are. You know, we see people that are, that are struggling, they're having difficulties, and we're like, why can't they act like a Christian? Well, because they're not a Christian. Why don't you go share the gospel with them? Strive for peace with everybody. Share the gospel with everybody. And some people are just ornery. They're unlovable. But that doesn't mean that, that we're allowed to shun them or push them away. We're supposed to strive for peace with them just the same. Strive to love them just the same. And to do so is to not, to not uh, uh, ignore the reality of who they are or their personality, but instead it's to do it in spite of that. Because the truth is, is God loves you in spite of you. And we're to look and do the same thing. And it might mean we have to work hard at it. And it doesn't just mean, first it means in our own Christian community, strive to be at peace with everyone around you in this room. And it's, it's funny because it's always easier when the room is small, but when the room gets bigger, that's when it's tough. You know, when all this COVID stuff happened and all this political stuff happened, in a church like this, we didn't feel too much turmoil of that because we all know each other and we're pretty close and even in areas we disagree, we still love one another and respect one another. But bigger churches were devastated because of the different sides and they weren't striving for peace with one another. And it, and it broke churches all across the country. But we're supposed to strive for peace with people. It doesn't say to agree with everyone but to strive for peace. This is what Paul said in Romans 12, 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he goes on to say that we're to strive for holiness. Why? Well, one, because that's how you should be living your life, but two, that's how the others, the other people, other people can see God in you. You are an ambassador for Christ. And just like the heroes of faith that are witnesses for us, we're witnesses for the world at the power of God. 
and the changing power of God in our lives and how it can impact others. So we need to make sure that we are striving for holiness, living in a holiness in such a way that God is glorified in our lives so that when people see us, they see God instead of dragging God's name to the mud. When you say you're a Christian on Sunday and you live your life the rest of the week like you're not one, people just remember you said you were a Christian and you've been dragging his name through the mud the entire week. It says, no, live with holiness because without that, no one will see the Lord. It is your responsibility to let God see people in you. Then he goes on in verse uh, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You know, we should be looking out for one another in the church to ensure that no one misses out on the grace of God. What he means by this, this is the, the, the blessings of God that, that he has bestowed on his children in Christ. Freedom, victory, all of those things. We need to, if we see others that are struggling in that area, we need to come alongside them and encourage them and remind them. This is actually the, the real way to speak the truth in love. It's not to point out their failures, but instead point out Christ's success in their lives. Help them to live out what, what, what has been accomplished for them. Encourage one another to grab a hold of those blessings and promises that are yes and amen in Christ. Amen. And then he goes on to say, we're to ensure that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Bitterness is one of the most dangerous things to a church. People get upset, they get angry, and then that that bitterness, like it says here, a root begins to spread out and they begin to pull other people with them. And we're, need to, we're, to, we're to be careful and ensure that that root doesn't spring up in our churches. We need to, one, be careful it doesn't spring up in our own lives. And two, if we see in someone else's, that's when we go and begin to remind them of the grace of God so that it doesn't run rampant in their lives. Because the reality is, is that the fruit of this root of bitterness has the potential to destroy churches. And that's something that we need to be on the lookout for. And then finally in verses 16 and 17, it says, uh, see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The next command is that, we, is that no one is sexually immoral. You know, God doesn't forbid sexual sin because he wants to steal our fun. God forbids sexual sin because it is dangerous to us. It'll actually destroy us. Sexual sin has the power to not only spiritually destroy, but also to physically destroy you as well. And it's something that we should never underestimate in our lives and be very careful with it. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, flee sexual morality. You know, other sins were in the Bible were encouraged to resist. We're never encouraged to resist sexual immorality. We're encouraged to run from it. You don't try to stand your ground with sexual immorality. You just turn tail and head away, head away, head out. Because it is so dangerous and so detrimental to you. 
It's funny, I, uh, when I talk about movies with people that I work with, I, all I have to do is ask them now, is it something that I can watch? And they know <laughs> if I can or not when they're talking about it. But I remember one time, uh, several years ago, a guy asked me, he's like, how is it that all you Christians, and you know, me in particular, you're, you're, you're okay with all the violence and all that stuff, but you're not okay with, with nudity in your movies? And I said, well, I've never been tempted by violence. If I watch violence in a movie, I'm, I'm never tempted to go out and, and, and shoot up a store or try to hurt somebody. But I certainly am tempted by sexual immorality in movies and nudity and the sexual stuff. So I don't try to test myself. I just don't watch it. We're supposed to run when it comes to that because it is so dangerous. And then finally he tells them not to be unholy like Esau. Esau gave up his birthright for a single meal. And so many Christians are tempted to do the same. And it may not be a meal, but it's something else that they shouldn't be doing that gives them pleasure. It's that passing pleasure of sin that makes them feel good for a moment, but can have everlasting consequences. See, the author didn't want his readers going back to that old lifestyle. Remember, not too long ago we were talking about it. He was encouraging, don't go back to the old Mosaic system, the Levitical priesthood. You don't want to go back to these things, even though they may seem easier, or even though they may seem like it's, it's what you're used to or what's more comfortable or, or any of those things. He didn't want them to be turned away by those heavy weights in their life or the sin that clings so closely. He didn't want them to give up their inheritance for that quick, simple, one-time meal. And the problem is, is this is easy to do because it comes so quick and we can be distracted so easily. And the problem with that easy way is that it doesn't last. It's just a quick pleasure. It doesn't have anything lasting. It can't protect you. It can't save you. It was just a, a moment in time. And for Esau, he didn't have a chance to repent. It says, you know, that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And the author didn't want these men and women who were, he was writing to to find themselves in the same position. Because the truth is, the moment you breathe your last, you don't have an opportunity to repent anymore. There is a cutoff date. And so many people think, well, well I'm, I'm young. I got 40, 50, 60 years to live. But the truth is, is it can come so fast in a blink of an eye. And then like Esau, you'll be rejected in tears, having no chance to repent. So instead, do it now. Instead, straighten your path now. Church. He's writing to these people saying, you know what, I don't want you to turn away. I don't want you to give up your inheritance, your blessing for that simple moment. Stay on the straight path. But the truth is, is it applies just as much to us. So church, I would encourage you, let's make sure that we're staying on the straight path, that we're going to run this race with endurance, making it to the end. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.